Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, August 31st, 2010. Tomorrow is the first day of September. What? What, Wasn't it like Easter, like yesterday? And wasn't it New Year's Day the day before? I mean, these things kind of all blur together. But oh boy, is it a great heresy season. Ooh, it's the best. Yeah, yesterday... (laughs) Yesterday I left the microphone <laughs> kind of despondent. <sighs> yeah, that was the Neverland sermon. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. <laughs> Strange things are afoot. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, wow, crazy stuff out there. And we, we try to cover some of it. But if you, if you listen to this program with any frequency or any regularity or you've listened to enough programs and you kind of get what we're doing here, uh, what we're doing is we're using the crazy stuff that's out there as a foil. And it's a, it, it, I am a terrible exploiter of all things bizarre in the religious world because I'm basically exploiting false doctrine and using it as a springboard to preach to you sound doctrine and to point you to Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now, to give you an example of just how bad this exploitation on my part really is, today I'm going to be reviewing a sermon from another local, at least local to me here in central Indiana, uh, seeker-driven uh, church. And uh, this was recommended by a, a listener. And I, I got to tell you, I get a lot of requests for sermon reviews, a ton of them on a weekly basis. And few of them make the cut. Few of them make the cut because you have to understand, I choose the sermons that I do in order to grind the axe that I want to grind. So if it just so happens that this sermon that you want reviewed fits into the um, – well, the th- the the unstated theme of the day on the program, uh, then then your the sermon you've requested will go to the front of the line. That being said, um, the um, this, it's not well. Let me put it this way: the sermon I'm reviewing in hour number two today is uh, it, the sermon series is entitled Facebook, and it's supposedly about the importance of friendship. And uh, the the pastor, typical seeker-driven form, completely misses the point of Scripture, and you'll see that as we get into the sermon review. However, that's not the reason why I chose the sermon. The, re- uh, the reason I chose the sermon is because I want to tell you about Jesus in the Old Testament. And so, <laughs> yeah, because uh, the, 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 he completely misses the point of the book of Ruth. 
and uh, and uh, I it was, was it a two month two or three months ago I uh, the Ruth was in my uh, daily readings and uh, you know and read through the entire book in one setting. At the end of it, um, I was I, I literally teared up and just it was just the most amazing story. And there's Christ right there in the Old Testament. You could see his type. You could. You, you know, it's there in this amazing love story between Ruth and Boaz and the need for a kinsman redeemer. And, I mean, it, it, it's a story that just comes out of nowhere, it, you know, and uh, it's just amazing stuff. And, of course, uh, the pastor there at uh, this church that we'll be reviewing the sermon uh, today for, uh, he seems completely oblivious to <laughs> how this story is about Christ. I mean, and so uh, that being the case, uh, just me being the gratuitous exploiter of false doctrine that I am, I have got, I'm going to use this as a springboard into uh, teaching you by reading the book of Ruth and, and pointing you to Jesus in, in, in uh, the book of Ruth. And uh, it's really more about what I'm going to be doing biblically today than about the sermon review. So uh, the the the, uh, the listener who uh, recommended this on my Facebook wall, thank you for uh, recommending it, and I will be taking advantage of said sermon in order to point you to Christ. <sighs> Was that too much confession on my part? Was yeah, that probably. Um, but the, I think it's important that uh, some of you all understand what the shtick is here, and uh, and you know the stick the shtick is you know all of this false doctrine. It, you know, it's it's sad. It's entertaining. It's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. But never the goal. The goal is never to just sit there and go, oh, that's just awful. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's awful. Yeah. But I want to point you to Christ. Now, now you've taken a look at the garbage. By the way, I, I do think that's probably my spiritual gift. I've been given the spiritual gift of dumpster diving for Jesus, and boy, do I know how to pick the choicest garbage. <laughs> yes, sorry, that's just uh, <clears throat> maybe I should uh, talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith because it would probably be wise to go along that route. Okay, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I've got a fine story from the Telegraph in the UK that I would like to... By the way, just need to remind you all, when I talk about what I want to talk about, this is it's this is what I hope to get to. <laughs> Time permitting and my bunny trails aside, the, these are the stories that I would like to get to and things that I want to talk about. I have a little bit of unfinished business uh, from a, but uh, let me get to that here. Uh, hang on, with a story that I want to cover today from the Telegraph in the UK. The headline reads: "Christians can learn a lot more about life from heavy metal music," says cleric. Just, <laughs> yeah, published today in the Telegraph in the UK. <sighs> I can't wait to cover this story. I just, it's gonna be just uh, it, it, fun to. Uh, <clears throat> Take a look at, and then this one. Uh, just uh, one of the things I think you've I've said in the past in the program is is that critics are a dime a dozen, but you have to look at what the solution is that they're offering. Um, it's it's not hard to uh, diagnose the sickness that's in the Christian church today. So you got to be careful because those people out there who are saying, "Hey." There's something wrong with the church, and it looks like it's suffering from X, Y, and Z. And you sit there and go, yeah, the other people have been saying that the church is suffering from X, Y, and Z. Uh, so what's your solution? Well, my solution is is that we uh, be more moral people. 
Right. Uh, yeah, correct diagnosis, wrong prescription. So you always have to look at the prescription. So uh, I, I, I probably have received, a, by last count, about a thousand emails <laughs> linking to this story. Uh, the, the author, uh, this is from CNN, uh, uh, the author says more teens are becoming fake Christians. I kid you not. I think I've, I've received a thousand emails with links to this story. So appreciate all of that. I think based upon the fact that you all have sent me, uh, so many of you all have sent me links to this, I think I should cover it. So uh, we'll be looking at this story from the August 27th, uh, CNN, uh, living, uh, cnnliving.com. Well, you, you know what I'm going to talk about. Ha! And then hopefully we'll get to this today too. Um, Katie Sousa of uh, extreme prophetic fame, uh, one of the outer luminaries of Patricia King's uh, glory-filled gold dust sapphire uh, banker angel type uh, folks that hangs out with her and creates videos for her xpmedia.com website. Uh, Katie Sousa, she's got a... um, She's doing a four-part series on uh, the glory light of Jesus. Yeah, when you listen to this, it'll it'll give you a completely new perspective on that song, "This Little Light of Mine." I'm going to let it shine. But although she's not really talking about that, but we will. Yeah, we'll be tuning in there. And then uh, Albert Muller, <laughs> he has responded to Professor Giberson. And uh, on his blog, uh, he uh, he responds to Professor Giberson. We'll take a look at that. And uh, and I think we said that our our sermon review comes from the Ridge in uh, in Columbus, Indiana. We'll take a listen to their sermon on Facebook uh, entitled "I Feel Your Pain." That'll be in uh, hour number two. But one of the uh, unfinished bits of business that I didn't get a chance to talk about last week was this World Magazine story: Jim Wallace versus the Truth. Apparently, George Soros um, is a con- uh, financial contributor to Sojourners. And, uh, uh, yeah, having worked in politics and having worked, uh, well, I do uh, I do radio where um, I'm beholden to uh, those who support us, uh, People who tend to write large checks, uh, well, I mean, uh, they generally get access that some people don't normally get. It's just just the nature of the beast. And so the question is, is that with the $200,000 given by George Soros to uh, Jim Wallace's sojourners, it just makes you wonder what his uh, level of influence is there. And uh, has uh, is it possible that sojourners theology has been compromised? Well, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because if you know anything about Jim Wallace, uh, yeah, his theology is highly compromised, uh, postmodern, liberal, emergent-type compromised. So, yeah, just, you know, it's good to know that we have uh, atheistic uh, Marxists who are supporting religious organizations. But uh, we'll talk about that today if we get the chance. Uh, No, we will not get to this other story. I won't even tell you what this other story is. I'll have to save that for tomorrow. So we got lots of ground to cover uh, here at uh, here at uh, Fighting for the Faith today, and uh, you know what I thought we'd do is we'll we'll, we'll kind of you know settle in slowly today. Uh, we'll we'll start off with the easy stuff and uh, let's uh, listen to some Katie Sousa, but that requires us to uh, well. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, that's fractured fairy tales, uh, which means it's uh, we're about to launch into something really crazy from uh, the extreme prophetic gang. Here is uh, Katie Sousa in her brand, well, not brand new, but in uh, part one of her four-part series on the glory light of Jesus. See if you can make heads or tails of what she's saying here. Hi, I'm Katie Souza with Expected in Ministries, and for the next few days, for just 10 minutes a day, I'm going to do a mini-series on how the light of Jesus can heal your soul. Now, in case you couldn't figure out that what that was she what she said there at the beginning, her the name of her is, ministry is Expected End Ministries. Yeah, she's, yeah. But anyway, she's uh, so it's the the thing that she's going to talk about here is how the light of Jesus can heal your soul. Yeah, let me let me back this up and start over again. But it's worth listening to. Hi, I'm Katie Souza with Expected in Ministries. And for the next few days, for just 10 minutes a day, I'm going to do a mini-series on how the light of Jesus can heal your soul. I can hardly wait. <laughs> Listen to this scripture from Malachi 4.2. It's... <laughs> Listen to this scripture from Malachi 4.2. Anyone want to bet me um, a dollar? Yeah, I am not much of a gambler. Anyone want to bet a dollar, uh, you know, that uh, she's going to twist this passage? And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm betting one, sh- uh, one crisp, brand new dollar bill that she will be uh, mangling <laughs> God's word here. Uh, anyone want to bet against me and say, "Oh no, she is the epitome of sound biblical exegetical studies and 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 is a true teacher of God's word and handles God's word correctly." Any, anyone want to take that bet? says, for the son of righteousness, meaning Jesus, will arise with healing in his wings and his beams. That's beams of light. <laughs> Hang on a second. <sighs> These be oh, man. Uh, you sit in the ground, it's really not that funny, Chris. Well, I understand that it, you know, it doesn't really appear that way, and it's rather depressing that we have people doing this to God's word. I'm of the opinion that uh, I'm now to the point where you have to laugh, otherwise you will cry, and you'll leave the program despondent the way I did yesterday after the Neverland sermon. <sighs> Malachi chapter four. By the way, this—I mean, this isn't even enough context. I wonder if I should go back into three. No, I'll just show you what she's doing. If you want to read the fuller context, get into uh, you know, start at Malachi chapter three, beginning at verse one, and then kind of move forward. But Malachi is not that long of a of a book, and so you, you can actually be read in one setting. That being said, that's probably the better way to read it. But let me show you what she's doing here. Because the folks over at Extreme Prophetic, I mean, they wouldn't know proper biblical hermeneutics if it came up and slapped them upside the head. Yeah, if I mean, they wouldn't know what to do if, uh, I mean, if Milton Terry himself had uh, had raised from the dead during one of their uh, mortuary outreaches and t- taught them from his book itself, you know, how to properly do hermeneutics. They, they still would have no clue. Um, <clears throat> Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Uh, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. In um, <clears throat> side note here, um, Jerry Kieschnick, who's the outgoing uh, pre- current president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, he'll be leaving in a couple of weeks. Uh, the name of his um, big outreach program was called Ablaze. You know, reading Malachi 4.1 here, I- I'm thinking that may not have been a very wise 
name for <laughs> for I'm 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 hoping that the ablaze movement goes up in smoke, but that's just me personally. Anyway, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evil doers will be stubble. The day is coming uh, is coming shall set them ablaze, uh, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so... Here we've got this prophetic utterance. I, I think this is probably eschatological, talking about the end of the world. And when you put it in its context, you begin to see what's going on here. She's, she kind of misses the whole part uh, from verse 1, talking about the evildoers being stubble and God setting them ablaze. Um, it, uh, but Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Okay, now, that's the context. Let's go back and listen to uh, Katie Sousa here and her profound way of handling this passage because what she's doing here at this point is she's taking the meta, you know, the, the verbal word picture being painted, the son of righteousness, and then breaking it down into its component parts. Well, I, let's see, the son of righteousness. Well, the sun, the sun has beams of light. <gasps> yeah. And so that's how she gets to it, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a ticket. That's a ticket. The sun has beams of light. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh... can heal your soul. Listen to this scripture from Malachi 4:2. It says for the son of righteousness, meaning Jesus, will arise with healing in his wings and his beams. That's beams of light. Jesus can heal us with his light. Light can heal any part of our body, including our soul man. <laughs> uh, this woman needs to have her Bible taken away from her. She needs to have all of her Bible teaching privileges revoked. She apparently has not passed a Bible 101 course or having anything to do with biblical hermeneutics. Really? So... You've taken the leap where uh, the, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And um, and you've gotten to the point now where Jesus' light beams can heal your soul man. Hmm. Since we've been releasing this powerful revelation in conferences across the nation, people have gained new levels of freedom in every part of their being. We've been seeing physical healings happen when people get healed in their soul. We've been seeing people have healings in their mind, their will, and their emotions, and even their finances when they had the light of Jesus put on their soul man. <laughs> What, have you got Jesus locked up inside of a flashlight? I mean, so when the light of Jesus shines on your soul, man, all because of your misreading of Malachi 4, too, there, there's people that have had financial miracles. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As for me, I've never felt better in my life because I've been healing my wounded soul in the light of Jesus. 
What constitutes your soul? We're three-part beings, body, soul, and spirit. And your soul, man, is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, when you're born again in Christ Jesus, your spirit man becomes instantly perfect. There's no sin or wound inside your spirit man. So that means that the enemy has no legal right to torment your spirit. Where is she getting any of this? Really? <laughs> That's a fine doctrinal story that you're weaving together there. Yeah, are those threads made of sulfur? Yeah. However, upon your regeneration, your soul man is not made instantly perfect. And how many of you know that our soul is a mess? Over our life, so I have a messy soul, man. Times each and every one of us has experienced situations and circumstances, hurtful events that put wounds on our soul, man. <laughs> yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Some of you know. Come on, sing along. can cause us to have unbalanced, unhealthy emotions like rage or jealousy or depression. The wounds on our soul can cause us to think wrong thoughts, to take wrong actions. The wounds in our soul can cause us to feel what's called soul pain. That's when you feel that rejection and the loneliness, depression, despair. Now, our spirit man's made perfect, right? But our soul man is not. And <laughs> there she did it again. Yeah, I'm experiencing some soul pain in my soul, man. And I got to make it up each and every day. Oh, honey, I said, don't you bet, because you ain't seen. continue here and the wounds on our soul are created by sin someone either sinned against you or you sinned against yourself maybe <laughs> oh man or you sinned against yourself 
<sighs> How about sinning against a holy and just God? You know, the creator, maker of heaven and earth, the, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? <sighs> Someone sinned against you. They molested you or verbally abused you. Or maybe they abandoned you. Or maybe you sinned against yourself. You got involved in drugs or alcohol. Either way, those sins that were committed can create deep wounds inside your soul, man. Oh, no, not again. I enjoyed the James Brown. And those wounds are what cause you to feel the soul pain, like rejection or loneliness. <laughs> oh, boy. This is what happens when you just make stuff up. This isn't biblical teaching. Malachi 4.2 doesn't teach any of this. Oh, oh. She did the funky heresy two-step. That's what she did. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll do some serious news. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Oh, we'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. You don't see the truth. 
They only see what they want to believe. They don't offer ten their sins. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning, sometimes you will have frequent opportunities to do the white man overbite and shimmy in your seat while listening to this theological program. Need to remind you all, fighting for the faith. Oh, man, am I in a weird mood. Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. This is listener-supported radio. It's, it's a partnership between me and you. I I do the research, production work, and uh, and record the program and broadcast it and podcast it. You listen, you learn, you grow, you laugh, you cry, and you hear Christ and Him crucified for your sins on a regular basis. And then what you do is you partner with us financially so that we can continue to uh, get this important radio outreach to you as well as to other people. 
And uh, the way you can uh, financially partner with us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Joining our crew is uh, is is a nominal way of uh, supporting the program, at least nominal on your part, but huge to us. Uh, and uh, it's $6.95 every month. It's uh, When you sign up for it, it automatically gets deducted from uh, whatever financial institution you set it up with. Uh, on a monthly basis, on the the monthly anniversary, that doesn't even make any sense. But every month on the same day that you uh, that you signed up for it, and it, it helps us out because uh, the the more people that subscribed uh, by joining our crew, it balances out the peaks and the valleys, and uh, makes it so that we can pay our bills on a month to month basis. So, uh, and of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, all you have to do is click on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box five zero eight. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. I need to remind you all, October 22nd and 23rd is coming up. And you're going, October 22nd, 23rd. That sounds, there's something about those two dates that are really important. Right. That's it. I'm going to be in Newburgh, Oregon. Uh, Newburgh, Oregon for the Believer's Reason Conference and Debates and I will be debating Doug Paget of the Emergent Church Movement. Uh, yeah, Doug Paget, Emergent Church Guru, uh, one of the uh, one of the Emergent Unholy Trinity. Uh, it'd be McLaren, Jones, and Paget, if you would. And uh, I'm going to be debating him on the doctrine of hell, whether or not you know there you know did Jesus really mean you know that there's a hell you know fire and you know things like that. And so we're going to be debating that topic, of course. Doug doesn't believe in hell, and uh, and so we're going to be debating that. And if you would like to attend, uh, uh, simple. If you want information about attending, uh, it's in Newburgh, Oregon. And uh, what you need to do is uh, go to my website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the left hand side of the fightingforthefaith.com website, right below the calendar, there it says Doug Paget debate info. Click, there's a little uh, little box advertisement there that says "Believers Reason" and it looks like fire, and that's because we're debating hell. And uh, 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 it, click on that, and it'll take you to uh, NewburgCC.org. Uh, it's NewburgCC.org, and you can get uh, information about how to attend uh, my debate with Doug Paget. Um, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, even if I wasn't debating him, I would want to show up uh, to my debate with him. Just to hear what he's going to say and and hear how he's going to reason with us from the scriptures on how hell isn't real. So yeah, I just I can hardly wait on that one. Okay, we got to switch gears here, and um, which requires us to uh, from the Telegraph in the UK. Christians could learn a lot about life from heavy metal music, says cleric. I mean, who knew that, you know, heavy metal music had so much to offer us Christians? This is by Martin Beckford, religious affairs correspondent. Um, The Reverend uh, Rachel Mann. Hang on a second here. Uh, The the Reverend who? Uh, The Reverend Rachel Mann, M-A-N-N. You mean the woman, Rachel Man uh, claims that the much maligned form of music demonstrates the liberative theology of darkness, allowing its tattooed and pierced fans to be more relaxed and fun by acknowledging the worst in human nature. 
<laughs> what? So, hey, listen, you know, those of you Christians out there who would be tempted to knock heavy metal music and um, uh, the Reverend <clears throat> Rachel, <clears throat> I have a hard time getting those words past my throat. The Reverend Rachel Mann claims that the much maligned form of music demonstrates, quote, the liberative theology of darkness. I had no idea that uh, darkness had a liberative theology. Okay, so uh, she says that by contrast, churchgoers can appear too sincere and take themselves too seriously. The priest admits that many will be, quote, concerned about metal lyrics that are praising Satan and mocking Christianity. But uh, she insists that it's just a form of play acting. <laughs> oh, I had no idea. Oh, that's uh, that just changes everything. So, I mean, when you listen to heavy metal music or maybe you have a teenage... Uh, t- you know, teenager who wears the dog spikes and where he dresses emo and has the tattoos and the piercings, and you can hear him playing his music in his car, you know, kill Jesus, you know, whatever. Um, it, it, well, that's just play acting. They don't really mean it. They don't really hate Christianity. No, 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 no. They really like Jesus and Christians. They're just play acting. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Ms. Mann, the priest in charge of St. Nicholas's, uh, St. Nicholas uh, Burnage writes in this week's Church Times, quote, since Black Sabbath effectively created, since Black Sabbath effectively created it in 1969 by using the dissonant sound of, of the medieval devil's chord, heavy metal has been cast as dumb, crass, and on occasions, well, satanic. I wonder why. Uh, Music hardly fit for intelligent debate, let alone theological reflection. And yet, as both priest and metal musician and fan, it strikes me that the church, especially at this agonized time, has a serious gospel lesson to learn from this darkest and heaviest of music. Ms. Mann (laughs) says that heavy... Metal songs characterized by distorted guitar sounds, intense beats, and muscular vocals are unafraid to deal with death, violence, and destruction. It's predominantly male and white fans generally like tattoos and piercings, but are graceful, welcoming, and gentle. Wow! I just well I, now that I know that they're play acting about the whole Satan thing, you know, I just can't wait to explore the and you know plumb the depths of the great theology of Black Sabbath and you know boy. If you want to read more about it, it's at the Telegraph at the UK. I I gotta stop. I I'm, I could if I don't I could blow a gasket at this point. It, it's got it's crossed the line into just absurdity. So we have a female pastrix telling us that, oh, the theology here, and it's all just play acting on the Satanism and hating Christianity part here. <clears throat> Moving along, uh, from CNN Living, uh, the CNN.com website, uh, a story by John Blake. Uh, the headline reads, uh, More Teens Becoming Fake Christians. Okay. Now, again, uh, this uh, earlier in the program, I kind of uh, tipped my hand a little bit as to where I want to go with this story. Um, listen, it, it is unless you are completely 
spiritually blind, which a lot of people are, um, and totally biblically uh, illiterate, which actually, sadly, many in the church are, um, to just the... Uh, the casual observer who actually has a brain and knows a little bit about the Bible, it's really easy to tell that there's something wrong. Something is amiss in American Christianity. Something is, uh, well, can't quite put my finger on it, but something doesn't quite seem right. And it's not hard to identify what that thing is. So just because somebody correctly diagnoses the fact that the patient is ill and may even correctly identify the illness by which the patient is suffering, doesn't mean that the person is necessarily qualified to offer a prescription. I read, <clears throat> If you're the parent of a Christian teenager, Kendra Creasy Dean has this warning. Your child is following a mutant form of Christianity, and you may be responsible. Now, Kendra Creasy Dean is absolutely correct. I agree with that statement 100%. Dean says more American teenagers are embracing what she calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Yes, we've been talking about moralistic therapeutic deism here at Pirate Christian Radio since we began broadcasting. This is not new. In fact, I first heard about moralistic therapeutic deism a few years ago from Michael Horton of the uh, White Horse Inn. And he heard about it from a guy who did a study on the, all of this stuff. And so this isn't this isn't a new phrase, but apparently CNN is new to this concept. I'm glad they're finally catching up, though. However, I'm a little bit worried because they've gone to Kendra Creasy Dean. We'll, we'll learn more about Kendra here in a minute. Translation, uh, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, it's a watered-down faith that portrays God as a divine therapist whose chief goal is to boost people's self-esteem. Yep, uh, we hear a lot about that. Uh, <clears throat> Kendra Creasy Dean is a minister and a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary and the author of Almost Christian, a new book that argues that many parents and pastors are unwittingly passing on this self-serving strain of Christianity, to which I basically say, uh, you, you, you're a what? You're a, uh, you're a minister? You're a pastrix? Hmm. Uh, she says, this, quote, imposter faith is one reason teenagers abandon churches. Well, she's right. Quote, if this is the God they're seeing in church, they are right to leave us in the dust, Dean says. Churches don't give them enough to be passionate about. Uh, Dean drew her conclusions from what she calls one of the most depressing summers of her life. She interviewed teens about their faith after helping conduct research for a controversial study called the National Study of Youth and Religion. The study, which included in-depth interviews and at least uh, 3,300 American teenagers between 13 and 17, found that most American teens who called themselves Christian were indifferent and inarticulate about their faith. That's because their pastors are indifferent and inarticulate regarding the Christian faith, and they've passed their inarticulate um, Bible ineptitude onto their <clears throat> teenage Victims. Uh, the study included Christians of all stripes, from Catholic to Protestant, both conservative and liberal denominations. Uh, though three out of four American teenagers claim to be Christian, uh, fewer than half practice their faith and only half deem it important, and most can't talk coherently about their beliefs. The study found that's because their pastors don't speak coherently about the Christian faith at all from their pulpits. Uh, <clears throat> 
If you need proof of that, please listen to the last 500 episodes of this program. Many uh, teenagers thought that uh, God simply wanted them to feel good and to do good, Uh, what the study researchers called moralistic therapeutic deism. Some critics told Dean that most teenagers can't talk coherently about any deep subject, but Dean says abundant research shows that that's not true. Quote, they have a lot to say, Dean says. They can talk about money, sex, their family, relationships with nuance. Most people who work with teenagers knows that know that they are not naturally inarticulate. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, um, now I, my, my oldest is no longer a teenager. He's a he's a 21-year-old married man in the Navy, but I still have two, two teenagers uh, in the house. And... Um, having now, you know, had one pass through the teenage years and still having two in them, I, teenagers ain't stupid. They're really, really smart. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I mean, uh, I don't know about your kids, but my kids have been taking AP classes. I didn't even take any AP classes when I was growing up. I, I, I probably could have, but I wasn't really ambitious in those academic kind of ways when I was a teenager. Long story, I won't get into it now. Anyway, uh, so, I mean, my kids are taking AP history, AP chemistry, AP uh, mathematics, AP this, AP that. They're they're capable of learning some very complex and nuanced data. And yet, uh, mm, well, um, it seems like in the Christian churches, uh, teenagers are, you know, what they're taught regarding the Christian faith, I mean, Quite frankly, I mean, it's the it's the, the stuff that's being taught to the teenagers nowadays. I mean, was like preschool stuff back when I was growing up. And um, <clears throat> anyway, just something I've observed. Okay, let's see here. Uh, she says, no matter their background, Dean says committed Christian teens share four traits. They have a personal story about God they can share, a deep connection to a faith community, a sense of purpose, and a sense of hope about their future. Quote, there are countless studies that show that religious teenagers do better in school, have better relationships with their parents, and engage in less risk beha- high-risk behavior, she says. Quote, they do a lot of things that parents pray for. Dean, a <clears throat> Kendra Dean, a United Methodist minister, <laughs> they, they say count to ten, it helps, <laughs> eight, Nine. <clears throat> oh, much better. Okay, passed. Okay, uh, Dean, a United Methodist Church minister who says parents are the most important influence on their children's faith, places the ultimate blame for teens' religious apathy on adults. Some adults don't expect much from youth pastors. They simply want them to keep children off of drugs and away from premarital sex. Others uh, practice a gospel of niceness, where faith is simply doing good and not ruffling feathers. Uh, the Christian, uh, the Christian call to take risks, w- uh, witness, and sacrifice for others is muted. She says, "The Christian call to take risks." Quote: If uh, if teenagers lack an articulate faith, it may be because the faith we show them is too spineless to merit much in the way of conversation. Wrote Dean, a professor of youth and cult, uh, church culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. More teens may be drifting away from conventional Christianity, but their desires to help others has not diminished, another author says. Yeah, you see, um, I read um, stories like this, and I sit there and I go, hmm, yeah, um, this is a correct diagnosis, and unfortunately um, the person uh, making the diagnosis cannot offer a, a prescription. Um, I, I, you know, 
why do I say that? Well, one glaring, big, big, huge, big, uh, really kind of big problem. And since I don't suffer from spineless Christianity, if you've listened to this program at any length of time, then you, one of the things you would not say is that I'm spineless. Um, <clears throat> um, Pastrix Kendra Dean, um, well, there is no such thing as a pastrix. The Bible doesn't allow such a thing. In fact, God's word clearly forbids it. And so whatever it is that you want to offer to uh, uh, Christians or teenagers um, as an alternative to moralistic therapeutic deism, I'm sure it would send them to hell just as quickly as moralistic therapeutic deism uh, because you're practicing a form of Christianity that is contrary to the scriptures. So therefore, automatically, it runs afoul of God's word and what it teaches. What we do need to do is... uh, uh, I think Issues Etc. covered this last week, an interview with Gene Edward Veith, is uh, we need to give Christian teenagers a faith that they can grow into and not out of. Uh, the, I, I got to tell you, as somebody who has studied Christian doctrine and theology through the ages, from patristics to the Reformation to medieval theology, uh, all the way through to uh, the modern and postmodern era, I, I have yet to become bored with uh, the complexities, subtlety, nuance, and beauty of 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 biblical doctrine and uh, what the scriptures teach, I you know th- this stuff just absolutely fascinates me. And any theology that can point me back to Christ and the cross and what He has done for us, I I like a kid. I, I want to hear that story over and over and over and over again. It never grows old, never grows old of hearing about the amazing love of God the Father to send his only begotten son to die in our place on the cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish and perish in the eternal flames of God's wrath for the sins that they've committed against him, but instead will have eternal life as adopted sons and daughters and children of God, all through the work of Jesus Christ and how that was promised at the beginning in, in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 and how it plays out through the uh, through the Old Testament stories all the way into the fulfillment that is found in Jesus Christ on, uh, uh, on that Christmas morn, on the day when Jesus was born. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. It is so, I mean, you can spend your entire lifetime studying this and never even come close to plumbing the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God found in this scripture. And uh, people have traded that treasure that we have in scriptures and in Christ and in in what God is really doing uh, instead for uh, shallow, watered-down versions of Christianity or apostate uh, versions of Christianity that uh, seek to um, basically compromise the message with the culture and give the culture what they want, including moralistic therapeutic deism and female pastrixes. Yeah, both are bad. Okay, moving along. Oh, I'm, am I going to be able to get to this? Okay, I'm, I'm watching my time here. I'm going to have to come back to the Albert Moeller one. Uh, tomorrow on the program, we'll uh, we'll uh, read Dr. Moeller's response to uh, uh, Professor Giberson. It it's it's wickedly brilliant, and I you know personally, I I think it would have been fun to watch Moeller not respond, uh, but uh, he did respond, and it's uh, quite a good thing. But uh, one more story before we uh, we take our second break. 
Uh, from the uh, worldmagazine.com website, it's worldmag.com, uh, the headline reads, Jim Wallace versus the Truth. Yeah, more evidence surfaces concerning George Soros' uh, Sojourner's Connection. Um, this is by Marvin Alasky uh, from the uh, World Magazine. Uh, Jim Wallace called this morning, uh, Friday, August 22nd, uh, 27th, and asked me to forgive him for reacting to my initial Soros Sojourner's column by calling me a liar. Yeah, apparently uh, Marvin Alasky uh, uncovered the story a while back, and um, <clears throat> Jim Wallace called and accused him of being a liar. Uh, it, let me read. It's almost an axiom of politics that the cover-up raises more questions than the crime. Ask Chuck Colston, Colson about that. In the case of Jim Wallace, oddly enough, we have no crime, but we definitely have a cover-up. Uh, here's some quick uh, background. Halfway through a July 17 world column, I mentioned that in 2004, Sojourners, Jim uh, Jim Wallace's organization, received $200,000 from billionaire George Soros, a financier of left-wing groups that push for abortion, atheism, bigger government, and other causes. I had a printout of a page from the website of the Open Security Institute, Soros's, Soros and OSI's founder, funder, and chairman showing the grant. It didn't seem to me like any big deal. Of course, Soros would see the religious left as important in drawing evangelical votes away from a conservative embrace. Of course, Jim would take the money in pursuit of his aim. So I was surprised by Jim's reaction when Timothy uh, Dolly Rimple, who uh, writes for P the Patheos website, asked him about my mention of sojourners receiving funding from Soros. Dolly Rimple asked, quote, is there anything wrong with making common cause with George Soros, with the George Soroses of the world? Jim exploded. It's not hyperbole or overstatement to say that Glenn Beck lies for a living. I'm sad to see Marvin Lasky doing the same thing. No, we didn't. We don't receive money from Soros. Uh, Jim kept insisting, quote, we don't receive money from George Soros. Our books are totally open, always have been. Our money comes from Christians who support us and who read Sojourners. That's where it comes from. Okay, easy enough to defend myself against lying. Ask folks to go to the OSI website and see for themselves. I did, and the record was poof, gone. Cue the Twilight Zone music. Was my printout a forgery? Was I lying? By the way, um, <clears throat> Marvin, I just—I know you probably don't listen to the show, but let me offer you just a bit of advice. And uh, that advice is this: over the years, I've learned that uh, you know, in in running the museum of idolatry, that um, let's just say embarrassing little videos, um, embarrassing little websites that uh, go up that really show. That give a black eye to like men like Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, uh, Bob Buford, other quote religious leaders like that. That uh, when you put when you link to their stuff or you um, put their videos and embed their videos on your website to show the church just how off things are, that evidence has a tendency to vanish. It it somehow gets yanked from the internet, and so just just one of the things I've learned along the way is that whenever you're dealing with a seeker-driven church and you're posting something up that's really embarrassing to them to basically alert the rest of the body of Christ as to what's going on, 
always make a backup copy. Now, now you're, you're going, well, YouTube, how do you, I mean, how do you make a backup copy of a YouTube video? I use a, a program called TubeSock. And I think the folks over at Real Media also have a, 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 a tool that you can use to download the, the, the video that's behind a lot of these flash players. And, and so I always keep a backup copy of any video that I, that I put up at the Museum of Idolatry so that, uh, when it gets pulled, I can just put it right back up. Yeah, it's, it's just, just something I've learned. It's just something, it's just a, a little survival technique. And, um, so, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting here. Happily for me, uh, some other people had been curious about uh, the Wallace Soros uh, Wallace Soros connection, and they had seen the two hundred thousand dollar grant listed on the website before some apparently uh, someone apparently scrubbed the site. They had a PDF of it and a PDF of a twenty five thousand dollar Soros grant to Sojourners in two thousand and six. Dolly Rempel wrote about this on his website. Uh, Jay Richards on August 17th wrote about this for National Review Online, noting I have physical copies of these pages, which is good because uh, these pages seem to have disappeared from the OSI website, and I'm sure that's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, that's how that goes. Anyway, Richards also noted that until Wednesday, August 11th, Dolly Rimple's uh, second blog post at Patheos had, ac- had accompanying PDFs of the OSI webpages. Alas, as I was writing this piece, the relevant webpages started disappearing. Uh, the first one was to go to Dolly Rimple's uh, second blog post. Then on the morning of August, uh, uh, Thursday, August 12th, Dolly Rimple's first blog post disappeared. And there seemed to be a lot of disappearing web pages nowadays. Yeah, uh, it, it, there's also uh, services out there on the Internet where you can you, know, the, the, you go like into a time machine to, to pull up past pages that have disappeared. Also, I find that tool to be rather helpful yeah, I I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, when web pages seem to be disappearing, isn't that like the internet version of uh, sending a document to the shredder? Richards concluded, "quote At the very least, Wallace has abandoned even the pretense of civil discourse here. Alaska has evidence of Soros's uh, Soros grants to sojourners, so the most that Wallace would be justified in saying is that Alaska is mistaken." and that the evidence is misleading or fraudulent, which seems unlikely. It's good to be defended, uh, but this was still bothersome. The Open Society Institute did not respond to a phone call asking why its pages were disappearing. So it looked like it looked like uh, we were left with Jim's word against others, including me, plus the evidence, yet people would be unable to look for themselves and see. So what do I do? I examine one uh, usually helpful website, GuideStar, but its collection of Sojourners IRS forms, uh, 9900s, uh, which many nonprofits uh, need to file, goes back only to 2007. Next, the Foundation Center website. Yes, it is early ones, but Sojourners merely had to list revenue from grants, not spell out their origins. So where is he at a stalemate? Well, no, wait. The contribution to Sojourners was uh, was gone from the Open Society Institute's website, but what about OSI's 990PF for 2004? IRS forms cannot be so readily scrubbed, right? Yes, the Foundation Center website has it. Wow, 283 pages. Let's dig in. Hmm, lots of income statements. Some of them printed upside down. Legal fees, programming-related investments, expenditures, responsibility report, no surgeoners grants, uh, grants to other organizations, no surgeoners grants to U.S. public charities. Yes, on page 225, here it is. Sojourners. <clears throat> Uh, 2401 15th Street, Northwest Washington, D.C., zip code 2009 to support the messaging and mobilization 
Project, Engaging Christians on the Importance of Civic Involvement, October 2004, for $200,000. So if you go to World Mag, you can actually go to this article, and you can click on the link and see it for yourself. Sojourners has received $200,000 from Jim Soros. And they tried to cover it up. Now, there's a an update to this particular story. Marvin Alasky writes, Sojourners Communication Managers, Tim, uh, Tim King, has now acknowledged that Sojourners received funding from George Soros. King released a statement with uh, from Jim Wallace in which Jim says he should have declined to comment until he had checked the facts. Now that Jim sees that there were grants from the Open Society Institute that made up the tiniest fraction of Sojourners funding during the decade, so small that I, I hadn't re- uh, remembered them. That doesn't even sound like remotely possible. Okay, I mean... I want you to think about this for a second here, okay? <clears throat> Let's put some things in perspective. Jim Wallace at this point is basically playing stupid. Oh, well, I had no idea. I, I should have checked the facts. I did not even know that, I mean, $200,000, mere pittance, pittance. It's just pennies from heaven. Who, you know, $200,000, yeah, whatever. Um, <sighs> $200,000 buys you a house in the United States. I mean, are we to really believe that um you know a $200,000 grant to sojourners wouldn't be noticed or even acknowledged by the head of sojourners I mean I mean are we I mean is sojourners so rolling in the cash that $200,000 well basically that's like you know uh you know a one dollar donation from you know some homeless person i i i i'm just i don't believe it okay i don't believe it i have okay i have worked for focus on the family i in fact when i worked at focus on the family i worked in the listener services department this was back when they were in Pomona, not Colorado Springs. This is before the Colorado Springs move. I li- I worked in the listener services department, and the division I worked at in the listener service department was the <clears throat> large donor division. And I can tell you this, um, anybody who made a significant contribution to focus on the family, um, they, um, yeah, there was some... Um, they they received some special treatment and what was considered to be a large donation at focus on the family anything over $500 anything at that time over $500 and so there was different ranges there was 500 to like you know 2000 2000 to 5000 5, you know and depending on how much you gave i mean there was i mean to the point where the larger the the fat cat donors and i know who some of them were, are and were um, you know, they would get personal handwritten communications uh, from uh, Jim Dobson. And at this point, I'm we're supposed to be led to believe by Tim King that Sojourners is so wallowing in cash 
that a two hundred thousand dollar you know donation pretty much goes unnoticed even by the head of the organization Jim Wallace could it possibly be that the reason why Jim Wallace is making it sound like uh, he had no idea is because the last thing he wants to have happen is are for people to connect him with George Soros because that might expose and shed a, 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 a brighter light on really what Sojourners and Jim Wallace are all about. Yeah, I think it matters. Just want to you know think critically here and you know ask some tough questions. But then, you know, then again, I mean, maybe they don't think two hundred thousand dollars is even worth noting, in where it came from or anything like that. Yeah. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy frenzy turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? 
Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Fighting for the Faith Hour number two sermon review time. It's a first for us here. We've uh, never reviewed two sermons in a row from the state of Indiana. Get your Bibles open to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to spend some time in Ruth today. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via the ridge in columbus indiana now i gotta tell you i'm not sure who's preaching it's either mark jones or it's jerry day there is no indication on the website as to who is doing the preaching now it does say that jerry day is the lead pastor but mark jones is the teaching pastor. So I may be wrong, but I'm going to take a stab at it, and I'm going to think that it's Mark Jones preaching, unless otherwise noted from somebody who knows better. So there. (laughs) That being said, the sermon is entitled Facebook. Yeah, that's right. That relevant tool of virtual relationship and social networking has now become a sermon topic. The sermon is entitled, I Feel Your Pain. Ah, that famous line from Bill Clinton. (laughs) I feel your pain. Yeah. And um, it's all about friendships. Let let me read from the Ridge website. Facebook. It keeps us in touch. It gives us a voice. It makes our social network bigger and the world a little smaller. It's about friendship. What can friendship in the age of the book teach us about friendships in the age of Facebook? So this is a sermon series about friendship. And uh, the reason why you're going to need to open your Bible to Ruth 
and read along because we're going to spend a lot of time in Ruth is because I'm going to show you how this book is not about friendships. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's kind of like missing the whole point. <sighs> so with that, let's dive into our sermon Facebook. I feel your pain. Facebook began in the year 2004, which is actually quite surprising. That's not that long ago, considering how popular it is today. At the end of July this year, there are now over 500 million worldwide users of Facebook. The original funder, Peter Thiel, PayPal co-founder, invested $500,000 in the summer of 2004 Today, Facebook is worth about $1.1 billion. Not a bad investment, huh? The Facebook.com domain name was purchased in 2005 for $200,000. Now, just for the fun of it, let's see if you can get these Facebook facts right. Um, do you know whose face was on the original Facebook homepage. Go ahead and show the picture. Check this out. Do you know who that face belongs to? That was the original Facebook homepage. Believe it or not, it was a young Al Pacino. Can you believe that? I had no idea. I I never I've never even seen the original Facebook webpage and not even sure what the original Facebook webpage has to do with the Bible at all. But maybe I'm just coming with the wrong set of expectations because, you know, my expectation is that a pastor, you know, actually preaches what God's word really teaches and points us to Christ and what Christ has done for us. But, you know, I'm so old school. Here's another Facebook fact for you. Um, How many friends does the average Facebook user have? Any we can guess at this one. Any guesses? What do you think? Say just a little louder. Four hundred. 120, 232, very... 150, 150. Precise number there. Um, I'm very impressed. It was 130. You were real close. Um, (laughs) So 130. Yeah, really close, but we have some lovely parting gifts for you. Thanks for playing. Um, Now, here's another one for you, another Facebook fact. Uh, Which state has the most users? Let's take a guess at that one. Any ideas? California, any others? Texas? Uh, which state has the most people in it? Sorry? Kentucky? <laughs> any others? New York? I thought, I thought the big three might get it. Nobody said Indiana, you know, but, uh, well, it was California. Um, I suppose that makes sense due to the population. California has over 15 million Facebook users. I just want to remind you all, this is supposed to be a sermon. Now, why is Facebook so literally just taking the world by storm? And like I said, there are now over a half a billion Facebook users worldwide. The fact that this social network would explode is pretty intriguing, isn't it? At first glance, I think it makes a case for friendships. You can renew old acquaintances, you know, perhaps people you didn't even hadn't heard from or didn't even know where they were, from high school, from college. For some, it's a way to communicate with friends. For others, it allows long-distant relationships to reconnect, to grow. 
And I think there are a lot of benefits to Facebook. But I've wondered sometimes if Facebook isn't a convenient way to do friendships. It's almost as if we can have friendships on our own terms, you know, at our convenience. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today, what it means to be a friend, especially during tough times. Facebook friends are great, but when times get tough, we all need deeper friendships than Facebook can offer. However, what I'm going to talk to you about today really is about being that kind of friend to someone else in difficult times, faithfulness in hard times. And, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about friendships. It talks about the value of friendships. For example, we read in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 in the Bible, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person fails, the other... Okay, I want to point something out here. Uh, we got a problem, and that is, is that the way he's characterizing the Bible, is, oh, like we could look throughout the Bible and we can see how the Bible teaches us. Uh, the value of friendships. And there's many examples of valuable friendships in the Bible. That's kind of missing the whole point. Okay, and by the way, um, I, I started learning about the importance of friends like before kindergarten. Yeah. And I didn't even have to go to church to do that. You know, um, I had friends when I was in preschool. I had friends, I went to their house and I played, you know, we did Play-Doh and we ate graham crackers and, um, yeah, um, I had friends all growing up and I have, I still have friends. So, um, if this is the problem that's being pitched, um, you know, the, the importance of friendship, I mean, maybe I'm just off here, but isn't this kind of like a no-brainer? I mean, as far as like, duh, hello. I mean, when my son went off to the Navy, I mean, one of the questions we asked him when he got to where he was stationed, are you making any friends? Yeah, you know, we were concerned about that, you know, being good Christian parents that, you know, my wife and I are. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, and we monitor the friendships that my daughters have. Yeah, we, we value good friendships and uh, we try to steer our kids away from what we deem to be bad friendships. And uh, and um, don't normally go to the Bible for friendship advice, do you? Other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. The Bible gives many examples of friendships, and throughout this new series we're starting today, Facebook, we'll look at several of those examples as we go throughout the series. But what I want to talk about today, I want, well, I want to begin, actually, by talking about what friendship is not, because I think it's good to just address a few misconceptions right from the start. First, friendship is not trying to find someone else who will take care of you. If you want to wreck the possibility, uh, are, are there people out there who really think this? I mean, this is the big problem that the church is solving. And I'll make sure. Now, let me give you some advice. When you go and you look for friends, make sure that you're not doing it to find somebody to take care of you. That's pretty self-serving. That's <clears throat> so I had no idea the Bible was just packed with all this friendship advice and this being one of them ability of a good friendship just go into the friendship with the expectation that the other person is there for you to be there for you to comfort you to listen to all your troubles if that's the expectation you have in a friend don't expect a friendship like that to last 
Uh, well, normally the people who come into a friendship with those types of expectations, you you can notice that there's that their their life kind of has a wake of destruction following them, and they don't have any current friends. Again, I, why do I need uh, Christ and Him crucified for our sins for this particular problem? My wife is younger than I am, so for years I've joked with her that I married someone younger than I am so she could take care of me when I'm old. And then she got her RN degree, and she's a nurse. So now I tell her I'm really set. But um, I can't say that has done a lot to strengthen our marriage, just so you know. So anyway, let me give you a second thing that friendship is not. It's not latching on to someone else who is al- already has a life, so you can end up with a life too. Okay, that's fine friendship advice. Where is this taught in the Bible again? It doesn't mean that friends are tools. You know, friends are just there to help us get where we want to go. As you well know, Washington, D.C. is known as the place where people just shamelessly use other people for the purpose of self-advancement. Harry Truman, who was the president of the United States from 1945 to 1953, once said, if you... If you want a true friend in Washington, D.C., buy yourself a dog. (laughs) And then um, a third thing that friendship is not. Friendship isn't a place to get your emotional needs met. If you view your friends as people to latch on to because you have stuff you're going through, that's not building a true, lasting friendship. In fact, today as we talk about faithfulness and hard times, I want to focus on how you can be the friend to someone else who's going through a tough time. But let me add this. We all need friendships for us too. We, we were created to be relational beings. God is a relational God. God was in a relationship before he even created the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But- wow, that sounds wow! Trinitarian doctrine mentioned in passing. But He created all of us to be relational beings, both with Him and with others. We find fulfillment in life ultimately through our relationship with God. Why? Because we were created for that. But we were also created to do life with others. And, you know, you've probably heard the statement that someone once said, no man is an island. Aristotle went so far as to say, without friendships, no one would choose to live even if they had all other good things in life. just want to point out, Aristotle is not a biblical prophet, nor was he one of the apostles. And Mother Teresa, who worked with the impoverished people there in the streets of Calcutta, said this, The greatest poverty I see is the disease of loneliness. Some of you have heard of Billy Joel, and he wrote a song several years ago called The Piano Man about a group of people who would gather in a bar. And the song says they're sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. Do you remember the movie? just want to remind you, Billy Joel was not one of the apostles. And, um, yeah, well, uh, couldn't I... Get this from like, you know, just ordinary life experiences. And well, I mean, if I am, if I'm really struggling here to have friends, um, couldn't I like, you know, go see a friendship counselor or maybe get some advice from Dr. Phil, you know, um, uh, pastor, uh, Mark, you have a job to do and that's to actually teach God's word. You know, point us to Christ, sound biblical, any of that, ring a bell. Movie 
where Tom Hanks, Hanks was stranded on an island all by himself. Remember what it was called, Castaway? You remember that movie? It's a long movie, and it has a whole lot of Tom Hanks in it, so you need to like Tom Hanks to enjoy this movie. Um, he was on a FedEx cargo plane that crashes at sea, and he, being the sole survivor, gets washed up on a beach. Some FedEx packages get washed up on shore on this remote island, so he sits on the beach, and he begins to open all these packages, and he goes through the stuff. He finds a pair of ice skates, which become pretty useful, you know, especially the metal in them. He opens one thing after another. He discovers something, though, that actually became one of the key supporting roles in the movie. It became his friend. For those of you who have seen the movie, do you know what I'm referring to? Wilson. Yeah, some of you didn't even say volleyball. You gave his name. You said Wilson. It was a volleyball named Wilson. And the character that Tom Hanks plays in the movie named Chuck Nolan cuts his hand and his hand has blood all over it. And he puts his hand on the volleyball. And when he looks at the handprint on the volleyball, it begins to look like a little face to him. So what he does is he he puts, in fact, here, check it out. Here's what it looked like. Um, So he takes and he puts eyes on it and he puts a nose and he puts a mouth. And eventually he even put hair on this volleyball. And then he begins to talk to Wilson. He called it Wilson the Volleyball because that was the name brand, obviously. And he begins to talk to Wilson throughout the movie. You know, Tom Hanks was nominated for this movie, um, the Academy Award for Best Actor. It's kind of disappointing Wilson didn't get a nomination in it for (laughs) Best Supporting Actor or something like that. Now, for four years, while Tom Hanks is stranded on this island by himself, his only companion is Wilson. The volleyball. And he talks to Wilson. He cries with Wilson. He gets mad at Wilson even. It's an interesting study on the need of humans for friends. After four years of being on the island, Tom Hanks' character decides it's time to get off the island. He builds this rough little raft and he, he heads out into the ocean hoping that perhaps he'll be rescued. He takes Wilson with him on the raft. They make it to the open sea, but one day Hanks falls asleep and Wilson comes off the raft and he begins to float away. And if you've ever seen the movie and you're watching Wilson float away, it's kind of stressful to watch, isn't it? You're thinking, wake up, wake up. In fact, watch this short clip and you'll see what I mean. Check this out. Uh, He did, for the podcast, took the, the movie clip out. Um, uh, yeah, Castaway, not found in the Bible. It's not a biblical story. Um, we are almost halfway through this sermon. I am not kidding. We're, we're almost halfway through it. And you're thinking, I haven't learned nothing about the Bible except for this passing reference to God, the Holy Trinity and being in relationship, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that we were quote, created by God to be in relationship, to do life with other people. Yay, yay, yay. Um, you know, I, I think that um, I don't think Jews would find this uh, uh, message offensive at all. Do you? Um, I don't think any Muslims would really find this offensive either, except for the mention of the Trinity. They would be, you know, no, 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 Allah is one. Um, but aside from that little thing, um, they, they, yeah, no, no, friendship's very important. Yes, yeah, very. Um, 
I mean, a Buddhist could probably listen to this and not be offended. I mean, where is the offense of the cross? Uh, where is the bold proclamation of God's word and what it really teaches? By the way, we're going to be in the Book of Ruth because he's that's where he's going. Uh, but again, we're we're just about halfway through here with this sermon. Watching the deep emotion and the sense of grief and loss that Chuck Nolan feels in this movie, Wilson, is a poignant reminder that we're not created to be alone, isn't it? Now, there are hurting people out there everywhere. Yeah, and can we talk about what is the root of all of that hurt? You know, like man's sin, you know, and rebellion against God. Um, that You think that might play in here, Pastor, to why some people are hurting, you know, and there are people who need you. You know, Mother Teresa was right when she said that loneliness is the greatest poverty. God calls us to be that friend to someone who needs a friend during hard times. Now, completely agree. We are called to love our neighbor. And that, that means to befriend him and help him in, in you know, in... It, when he has bodily need, when he you know help you know be a protection of his property and other things, totally agree with that's taught in the Bible. But can you rather than just giving it to us kind of slogan style, you know, hey, you know, do you think you could you actually go into the scriptures, open up the biblical text, have people open their Bibles, you know, hear those pages flipping, um, and then. Show them how that slogan is not just a slogan, but is actually taught in God's word. You think you could do that? Whom do you know that needs a friend like that? Throughout the Bible, you see examples of friends being faithful in hard times. Friends who were there for their other friends' pain. David had Jonathan. Joshua had Caleb. Elijah had Elisha. Paul had Barnabas. Timothy had Silas. Uh, you are aware that Paul and Barnabas, uh, you know, they had some pretty mean fights. Even Jesus had Peter, James, and John. But there's one particular one that I want to focus on today. It's the story of two ladies, one who was such a faithful friend to the other one in hard times. It's the story of Naomi and Ruth. Many of you are... Okay. <clears throat> um, okay. Say, basically using the story of Naomi and Ruth as, you know, and strip mining it for principles about how to be a good friend, it, it's like completely missing the point. I mean, this would be like using Jesus' uh, parable of the of the seeds, you know, the sower and the seeds going out and sowing seeds everywhere. And there's, and there's some falls on the path and some falls on the rocky soil and some falls on the, uh, the in the weedy soil and some falls on the good soil. That would be like using that parable to give uh, basically church parishioners in a farming community advice on how to how to tend to their farms. And it's it's like completely missing the point. But let's see where he goes. Probably familiar with the story, but some of you may not be. So let me give you just a little bit of background information before we jump in here and read some of the story from the Bible. There was a man named Elimelech who lived in Judah, and he had to go to the country of Moab with his family because of a severe famine in Judah. He took with him his wife named Naomi and their two sons. Both sons, when they arrived in 
Moab married women who were from Moab. Then Elimelech dies. Then his two sons die. So Naomi is left with her two daughter-in-laws. Naomi decided to return home. And I'll pick the story up there. I'm going to be reading to you from a book in the Bible. It's the book actually called Ruth, named after one of her daughter-in-laws, Naomi's daughter-in-laws. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 6. Check it out. Here's what it says. It says, Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughter-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not. My daughters, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Now, I know some of that sounds a little weird when I read it, but it was really a cultural thing going on. If a man died and he had a brother who was available, he was to marry his brother's widow. And it was really designed to benefit the widow in that culture. But anyway, let me just say that, and then I'm going to keep moving here and reading. I'm going to go down to verse 14 and pick the story up again. And here's what it says. And again, they, were, they wept together. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you in return or, and to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. That verse that I just read, the very last one, is not only one of the most well-known verses in the book of Ruth, it's actually one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible. It's a verse that shows how Ruth was faithful in hard times to Naomi. She says to Naomi, basically, look, I am with you in this. You may be grieving losses in your life, but I'm not going to be one of those losses. It's a beautiful, it's an incredible model of faithfulness. Okay, so basically we're using um, a story of Ruth and Naomi as a moral example of what does it mean to be a good friend. Ruth chapter 1. If you have your Bibles and you haven't flipped over there, flip over to Ruth chapter one. Now, this is an amazing story. One of the things that's amazing about it is, is that it, it, it like comes out of nowhere. I mean, that for, for lack of a better way of putting it, it comes out of nowhere. I mean, here you've got the story of Genesis. You've got Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Uh, uh, you've you got, uh, you got the, the five books of the Pentateuch. Then you have Judges. And, and before we get into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you have this book that just kind of, you go, wow, the, the story is really different. What's going on here? 
Well, you can't understand the scriptures. You can't really understand what's going on in the scriptures unless you understand it's not about you. It's not these stories are not character sketches for you to, quote, follow. That's kind of like missing the whole point because everybody in the scripture is a sinner. Okay, you can't understand the scriptures unless you go back to the garden, go back to Adam and Eve, go back to this temptation by the serpent, Adam and Eve falling into sin and God pronouncing his judgments. But in his judgment, he talks to Eve and he says that he will cause enmity between the seed of the woman and between the serpent and the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent would bruise the heel of that seed and then we launch into human history post eden and in the bible it's not a story of all of mankind it's tracing a scarlet thread it's a scarlet thread that goes from adam and eve through the old testament all the way to christ and so out of nowhere comes this story and it doesn't seem to fit in the book of judges it doesn't it doesn't fit in the pentateuch it doesn't fit in first and second samuel it's kind of a prelude to it but i mean it's just one of these things where you sit there and go okay where did this come from okay you can't understand this story unless you understand that we are now this is scarlet thread stuff this is the line of christ and this is God's miraculous protecting and redemptive work pointing us to the cross in the family that Jesus is related to. And, you know, just to kind of give you an example of what I'm talking about here, if you were to do a word search for Ruth in the New Testament, you were to only look in the New Testament, you will find that she's mentioned once. Okay. And that is in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 5, Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus given to us by uh, the by uh, Levi, the tax collector, Matthew. Okay, And we read, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. I mean... This verse is so critical and key to understanding what is going on here. Okay? Um, there are two women mentioned in this verse. One is Rahab. You're going, Rahab, Rahab, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Rahab. Okay? Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David. We are right here, right at this point in the story. We are, this is scarlet thread, literally burning bright. This is pointing us to Christ. You mean, I mean, out of anybody's story that could have been told, out of anybody's story that could have been told, we are given the story of Ruth and Boaz. Who was Boaz's mother? 
I mean, this is amazing stuff. This is amazing, amazing stuff. And you don't get it unless you see Christ in the story and you see the line of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in this story. And uh, this, this is a story that I can't read without being moved to tears. So let's spend some time reading this. Forget the friendship stuff. We'll get back to Pastor Mark here in a minute because he's, I mean, he's missing He's missing this majestic, beautiful panorama of the Messiah by strip mining this story for friendship tips. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kailion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died. And the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, this is the worst, terrible scenario for a woman back in those days. She has no sons to take care of her. I mean, her rights are, oh man, this is a mess. This is an absolute tragedy. Who is going to save her? Her. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. I sh if I should say I hope that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me, for, you, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That is a profound thing right there. 
this is a fledgling confession of faith in the one true God, Yahweh, from a woman who is supposed to be an idolater, an unclean Moabite, whom these Israelites were not to be intermarrying with. And yet God in his mercy grafts these people into the line of the Messiah. I mean, it's just absolutely profound. I will lodge where you lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, let me kind of make something clear here. According to the Mosaic Law, when you were living in Israel at this time, if you were living in Israel at this time and you were a farmer, when it came time for the harvest, you had to, you harvested your stuff, but the stuff that fell to the ground, the glean, they're called the gleanings, okay? If anything fell to the ground, you know, you, this is all part of how the harvesting takes place. You are not to pick that up and collect it. That, according to God's law, belongs to the poor. And so those who couldn't provide for themselves... God provided for them in his law by giving them the gleanings of the land so they wouldn't starve. And so that's what Naomi is doing here. It's sustenance living at best. And so you kind of get what's going on here. Ah, Again, I cannot read this without getting emotional. This is just the most amazing story. All right, so she set out and and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So then Boaz said to Ruth, Now now listen, my daughter. 
do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men uh, have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that did not know you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done, and the full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Listen to the faith beating in the chest of Boaz. He's not saying that I'm here to protect you, young lady. Oh, what a great man I am. No, he's he's basically saying, may the Lord bless you. And I want to point out to you, you have come under the protection of Yahweh, the one true God. You are now under the protection of the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up, and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this young, uh, with his young women, lest in any other field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is, our win he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, 
But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. Now, I want to point out something here. There are some people who completely mangle this story and say that uh, uncovering his feet has some kind of sexual erotic uh, connotation. That is absolutely not true. When it talks about uncovering his feet, that's literally what that means. It was to, is a means of kind of gently waking him up. That's the idea here. There's nothing erotic going on. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet, and then she lay down. Now at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this is kind of a veiled uh, marriage proposition here. That's exactly what's going on here. And she said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer. Yet there is a Redeemer that is nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And go ahead and lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six me uh, measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went out into the city. And when he came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? She told her that all, all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley... And he gave me, uh, he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter tomorrow. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, my friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I have come after and I come after you. And the man said, Well, then I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, Well, 
I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witness this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses, and may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, that his name may be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has, that has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ran fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashton, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. This story points us to Christ. And the redemptive story that's in here of a kinsman redeemer, you have to be blind to miss it. This isn't a story about friendship. This is a story about redemption. And who are we that the Lord would take notice of us? Are we not all foreigners and idolaters like Ruth? Who are we that God would take notice of us? And God himself, God the Father, has sent our kinsman redeemer to redeem us, to purchase us. And the church is his bride. And he does it not with money, he does it with his own blood. Here, the story of Ruth, we have the scarlet thread of the Messiah, of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and it's all wrapped up in purposeful 
redemptive language. This is not a story of friendship. This is a story of redemption. This is a story of disaster and restoration through redemption. And the types and the shadows in this story point us to our story, the one we all find ourselves in, the disaster we find ourselves in in a sinful and fallen world, and the love of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, and his shed blood on the cross that redeems us out of our poverty and brings us into the protection of his great and glorious kingdom. That God, Yahweh, spreads his wings over us to protect us as his redeemed and purchased people. To turn this into a story about friendship is to just totally miss the point. This is a story about Christ. And isn't that who Jesus is? He's the son of David. He's the son of David and he's the son of God. And this story is about him. Even before he was born, we can read about Christ and the faith of his people that he set apart for himself to bring about the redemption and the and his shed blood on the cross for the sins of the whole world, yours and mine. Let's continue with the sermon. In hard times. Now let me read you the rest of the story. Ruth continues, and I'll pick it up in verse 17. Ruth says, Whenever you die, I will, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited about their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. As you can tell by what I just read, Naomi... It's pretty bitter at this point, isn't she? She's still grieving, and her emotions are just out there for everybody to see. You picked up on it. She's even angry with God at this point in her life. But here's what I want you to understand. Ruth, because of her faithfulness to Naomi in hard times, helped Naomi turn a corner. Ruth was the friend that Naomi needed when Naomi needed a friend the most. And as a result, the story actually has a happy ending to it. Ruth married a wonderful man in Israel. They, after they were married, um, they gave Naomi a grandson. And let me just go to the last chapter of the book of Ruth and tell you how this story wraps up. Here's what it says. 
So Boaz took Ruth into his house, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law, who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast. She cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Now you talk about a happy India. I mean, Disney can't write scripts even this good. Naomi not only has a grandson, her great-great-grandson ended up being the great King David of Israel. And it all came about because of the faithfulness of one lady to Naomi in hard times. Ruth. No, it all came about because of their faithful God. Who wouldn't let her friend go through a tough time alone. So let me ask you a question. When Naomi was coming to the end of her life and she was reflecting on her life, what do you think she talked about? I'm guessing every sentence... The text doesn't say, because the point of the text is not Naomi's feelings or her reflections on her life. Included the name Ruth. Ruth was there for me when I didn't know which way to turn, Naomi might have said. Or Ruth stuck with me in my lowest moment. Ruth gave me a beautiful grandson who's the joy of my life. I don't know where I'd be today without Ruth. Ruth's faithfulness showed me that God is faithful. So as we begin this Facebook Facebook series today, let me give you three guidelines for faithful friendships. Here's the first one. You know, it's there, there's a reason why I read all four chapters of the book of Ruth. Number one, it's short. But number two, when you really understand what this thing is about, then you understand that this type of preaching is basically a complete, cheap, plastic banana knockoff of the real thing. This guy's not giving you the gold of Scripture and the treasure of God's Word in Christ. He's giving you a completely hollowed out and gutted version of the Bible. I mean, in the in this in in his emphasis. Here, that completely robs you of the beauty and majesty of what this story really is about. And when you just compare the two, don't, it has nothing to do with my ability to read or tell a story, anything like that. When you compare what this text really says, what it's really about, to what this guy is doing with it, you realize... This guy is not only mishandling God's word, he is not doing what he's supposed to do and correctly teaching it and helping you to see Christ in it. Again, you have to be completely blind to miss Christ in this text. Faithful friendships cost you something. One reason we sometimes don't reach out to others and offer to be a friend when they need us most is because we know it'll cost us something. 
It's true. Being a faithful friend will cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It may mean saying to someone, so how are you really doing? And then just sitting down at an inconvenient time. Three moralizing steps at the end. Good night. For you and just listening to them. It may mean mowing the grass for them when they're on vacation. It means watching their kids, sometimes on a moment's notice. But it also costs you something emotionally. You hurt for them when they hurt. You feel drained when they're going through tough times. You lose sleep when they feel stress. But that's what faithful friends do. And here's what you need to know. When you do that, though, when you become the faithful friend to someone else, especially in the times that they need you the most, you will ultimately find that you are blessed through relationships like that. Proverbs 11.25 says this, The generous will prosper, and those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Here's another guideline. Faithful friendships take time. Faithful friendships don't happen overnight. In fact, faith. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can get these three tips from anybody, but I can't get Christ and Him crucified from anybody except for the, you know, from a faithful minister of God's gospel and His word. Why is it that this pastor is not faithfully administering the duties of his office to point us to Christ? and to properly handle his word. These tips are just, this is just moralism, do-goodism. It's ethical. Oh, yeah, here's some great advice on three things you need to keep in mind about building strong friendships. (sighs) Whatever. Faithful friendships are often the ones that just do life together. Faithful friendships are friendships that develop during the hard times. Let me ask you this. If you remember going through a tough time in your life, Was there someone there for you? If there was, you probably still remember that person really well, don't you? There may be even a special bond with that person because they were there for you. And Proverbs 17, 17 says this, A friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. Faithful friendships, though, take time. John Ortberg, who's a pastor and author, writes this. If you think you can fit deep community into the cracks of an overloaded schedule, think again. Wise people do not try to microwave friendship, parenting, or marriage. And that's true. That's some great advice, but it's not the good news of the gospel. That might be some great advice, you know, for friendships to keep in mind. I'll tuck that one away. Thanks. But it's not going to point me to my kinsman redeemer, my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of David. And finally, one more guideline I want to give you about faithful friends. It's this. Faithful friendships are what you were created for. Now, we mentioned that earlier, but God said right from the start, you can go to the first book of the Bible, the second chapter, Genesis 2.18. It says, after he created Adam, he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. When you extend a hand of friendship to someone else, when you look beyond yourself and you become that friend to them, especially when they're going through a tough time, you bring God glory and you find your ultimate purpose. You know, as I look back on my life, 
I can remember going through some difficult times. I can remember some times that were tough here at the church when I was the pastor. And as I look back, I made it through those times even when I wasn't sure I was going to make it through some of those times. But in almost every case, when I look at the reasons I made it through those tough times, it wasn't because of my great faith. It wasn't because of my steadfast endurance or my ability to even see God's perspective on a situation. It was because of a faithful friend or two, friends who stood in the gap for me. They were friends who sometimes just listened. Once in a while, they'd step in and say, Jerry, let us handle that for you. You don't need any more on your plate right now. Yeah, you know, people of all religions and stripes, I mean, even atheists have friends, yeah. Having a friendship or being a friend will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Faithful friends in hard times. That's what makes the difference. Ruth was that kind of friend to Naomi. So let me ask you, whom do you know right now that needs that kind of friend? There are people around us everywhere going through tough times. You don't need to have special training. You don't need a degree. You don't need special qualifications. You just need to be a friend. Let me go back to Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. It says this, Two people are better off than one, for they help each other succeed. If one falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And that's the end of the sermon. Talking about friendship. Let me read the uh, lyrics to a hymn written in 1855 by Joseph Scriven. It's in the public domain. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, oh what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We have trials and temptations. Is there trouble every, anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend who is so faithful, who will all of our sh- sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise and forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised. Thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. Soon in glory bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. The friendship that really matters is is the faithful friendship of Christ, our kinsman redeemer, who lived a perfect life in our place and died on the cross for our substitute. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and yet he was without sin. 
our perfect kinsman redeemer, faithful friend, great God and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet born of the Virgin Mary, suckling at the breast of Mary, humbled and dying on the cross for you, for me. There are no tips to friendship with him. He's the one who does it all for us. And if your pastor's not pointing you to Christ, he's not doing his job and he isn't worth a tithe check. And that's the truth. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yes, that's right. We, we depend upon your generous gifts in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you. To not only diagnose the problem in the church, but to give us over and again the one solution, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who was bruised, beaten, and bled for your sins and for mine. And call us to repent of our idolatries, our false doctrine, and be forgiven. That is the only solution. No gimmicks. No, no methods. Just doing what Christ has called us to do. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. As you grow and learn from this program, we ask that you would help us to continue doing that financially by supporting us. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says, Join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Where you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Where you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, our great Kingsman Redeemer, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of God, Son of David, all for you. Amen. <laughs>